This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My approach is going to be historical uh, because I am convinced that it is not possible to understand today's dilemmas involving Muslims uh, without reference to the millennium and a half of experience from which those dilemmas emerge. But of course, that makes it a huge subject uh, and that means selection, it means radical simplification, uh, and it means some danger. Uh, Islam, as a major world religion, uh, is comprehensive in the divine and human questions which it poses. It's almost comprehensive in the answers that it gives. And it is forbidding in the length and breadth and depth of human experience uh, that it embodies. You can find in Islam, you can find in its sacred texts, and in that experience, uh, almost anything you want to find. Not everything, but almost everything. Uh, What that means is that whatever you say about Islam, uh, whatever uh, portion of truth in what you say, it's going to be honestly debatable uh, and rebuttable. Moreover, most of the things that have been said about Islam uh, have also been highly politicized. Uh, That was true in the pre-modern era uh, when Uh, What was said about Islam uh, was usually a weapon of religious controversy uh, between uh, Christianity and among Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Uh, It has also been true in the modern era, uh, which has been the era of domination and subordination, the era of Orientalism uh, in the West. And as Ian Burma and Avishai Margalit pointed out to us in the New York Review of Books just a couple weeks ago, of Occidentalism uh, uh, in the Islamic world. My assumption uh, in in approaching these lectures uh, has been uh, that a religion is what human beings uh, make of it at any given time. But that only gets you so far, uh, and I know that I am simplifying radically, and I expect criticism. Today's talk is about Islam's first millennium. Uh, Roughly a thousand years passed uh, between the death of the prophet in 632 of the Common Era. And to take an example, in 1580, uh, the truce between the Ottomans and the Spanish, uh, the Habsburgs in the Mediterranean Wars, which basically set the boundaries Uh, of Christian and Muslim societies around the Mediterranean. Or 1639, uh, the Treaty of Qasr Shireen between the Ottomans and the Safavid rulers of Iran, which basically set the boundary between Iran and Iraq that we have today. Or 1683, uh, the second Ottoman siege uh, of Vienna, uh, which was the last high watermark of Ottoman advance Uh, into the center of Europe. Roughly that thousand years uh, is what I'm going to uh, deal with today. Uh, Between 632 and the late 17th century. Of course, the late 17th century, to give you a point of comparison, was the time when Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards were wrestling so strenuously with the omnipotence of God and the sinfulness and waywardness of man on the shores of the Massachusetts Bay. So there was a difference in scale uh, already uh, out there. Certainly, uh, Muslims in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, of the Common Era had no reason to feel downhearted 
about their ability to compete globally uh, in either human or divine terms. Uh, in globalization terms, Muslims at that point were fully competitive. And here I'm going to define globalization uh, uh, in a way that's a little different from what we've had uh, since uh, the Seattle meeting uh, and even what we're having at the World Economic Forum uh, in New York today. I'm going to define globalization more broadly as the impulse among human beings uh, to reach and to go above and beyond the families and the kinship groups, uh, which have historically provided uh, humans with their first self-definition and with their best security in most times and in most places. I'm going to define it as the impulse to multiply and thicken their interactions with other human beings. And finally, is the impulse to argue about why they should do that or why they should not do that. Uh, and at any given time, globalization uh, has limits uh, that are set by the state of technology, uh, by the state of social organization, by the state of conceptualization, by the way uh, people think about things. Uh, limits that are set by the cost that globalization imposes and, and by the resistance to it. How far and how fast globalization extends, how deeply it penetrates into human society, uh, are really functions of the balance between these impulses and that resistance. But both the impulse and the resistance are always there. By that definition, during its first millennium, Islam was the most powerful engine or agent or vehicle for globalization in the world, and also its most sharply contested battleground. That millennium, it's important for us to have some sense of that millennium because it provided Muslims with the golden ages that they have looked back to uh, ever since. Uh, and it also gave them the strengths and the weaknesses uh, as a civilization that they took into the modern world that was being born just as that millennium ended in the late, 18, late 17th, in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, the strengths and weaknesses with which that they took into the world that has produced our dilemmas of today. All the great societies of that millennium shared certain features with what was becoming the Islamic world. So they, these were features that Muslims, therefore, shared with Christians, uh, with Hindus, uh, with Chinese. Uh, these were all agricultural economies uh, where most people uh, lived on the land, uh, agricultural economies from which rulers extracted and spent surpluses uh, in ways that generally had some religious sanction were justified uh, by some religion and by some religious, by some class which had special uh, aptitude uh, for doing so. From bases in cities, you know, in other words, although most people lived on the land, uh, the bases of these civilizations were always in cities. A rule, political rule, uh, in, in such societies was usually absolute in theory, but also limited in practice uh, in its range and in its depth. So these were things that Islam had in common over this millennium uh, with uh, the other great civilizations of the time. However, some features of this Islamic world of borning, developing, uh, were specific, and two of them stand out. I'll just mention two. First, not only is there something irreducible about every great religious revelation, every great religious message, something that cannot be explained by just by sociology or just by history. Uh, uh, each of the great religious messages has something unique. And the Prophet Muhammad's original message in the seventh century that there is but one God was extraordinarily plain and powerful and rigorous even compared to the monotheistic religions uh, which it claimed to succeed and to subsume and to supersede. 
In other words, plainer, more powerful, more rigorous, even than the mono monotheism of Judaism and Christianity. And it was expressed in a very specific language, Arabic, and in a lang in language of extraordinary beauty and poetry, I'm told, because I don't speak it. So I think you have to take it on, on faith. Muhammad, at a certain point, was, his challengers were, were saying that you had to have written, or you, this message has to be yours, it cannot be God's. Uh, and uh, his rebuttal was, you try to produce anything that beautiful, it can only come from God. And that was convincing. So that was the first thing, the specificity of the religious message and the, and the language in which it was expressed. Second, in geographic terms, the central zone over which Islam spread from Arabia, the zone between the Nile in Egypt and the Oxus, now the Amudarya, in Central Asia, happens to be semi-arid. It happens to be a zone of limited agricultural land uh, uh, divided by a lot of desert, large dry areas. So much more than the experience of Christians uh, in their forested and watered uh, regions of Europe, uh, or much more than the Jews in their cities, uh, the Islamic experience has been dominated by the, by the contrast and the interaction of desert and sown. As the 12th century poet Omar Khayyam, some of you will remember him, I grew up on him, as he put it, that just divides the desert and the sown. And so nomadic pastoralists have always been more of a presence in Islam and more of a problem. So those are two things specific to Islam. Experience then divided our millennium into three periods. The first three centuries after the prophet's death in 632 of the Common Era constitute the classical period, the favorite golden age of Muslims up until today. The small Muslim community, the small community of believers uh, that the Prophet had established in the Arabian merchant cities of Mecca and Medina not only survived the death of its charismatic leader, which is always the, the, the acid test uh, for a religious community built on a prophecy, not only survived, but immediately embarked on astounding expansion, astounding expansion uh, under the, the so-called first righteous caliphs the first four caliphs who were all companions of the prophet uh, and who were all from the Meccan clan of the Quraysh. So the message of Islam was universal. It was addressed uh, to all men uh, and women, uh, but the Islamic community was led by men from a very specific kinship group. And Islam has always accommodated the ethnic basis of society and has always had to. And within a very few years, uh, the leaders of this community and this community were in charge of Syria, of Egypt, of much of North Africa, of Iraq, and of Persia. Uh, the Sasanian Empire of Persia, which had lasted for some centuries, was destroyed. The Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was driven back onto Anatolia, uh, the peninsula uh, that is now Turkey. So it, it, enormous expansion in a very few years. Then the unity of this community was broken down in civil wars over the succession of leadership, the succession to the fourth caliph, who was Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, uh, Ali, Ali, as we say, uh, who was murdered in 661, so a, a bare four decades. Uh, or three decades after the death of the prophet, these civil wars breaking out. And unity was restored only after a fashion, and only partially, uh, under a dynasty that was also derived from the Quraysh, uh, the Umayyad dynasty, which then moved the capital to Damascus uh, in Syria. So, and a dispute over community leadership, which was what this was, this was not at the origins a dispute about doctrine. It was a dispute about who should lead. Uh, developed, however, over the decades and centuries uh, into the schism, uh, which divides the majority of Muslims, the, 
the Sunni, uh, who the followers of the path or Sunnah uh, of the Prophet, uh, and they're about 80 or 85 percent of Muslims today, uh, from the minority Shia, uh, the Shia, the partisans of Ali, uh, who constitute 15 or 20 percent. And the details of these civil wars have remained extraordinarily vivid uh, in the Islamic imagination. And so you, you, it happens that in the 21st century, many of today's issues are still debated by Muslims uh, in seventh century terms. For the next century, the Umayyads consolidated the community and its new empire, basically using Byzantine and Sasanian uh, traditions and practices, which, which meant that Islam functioned largely as an Arab-ruled successor state to these two great uh, Middle Eastern uh, imperial states. But this, in turn, then provoked the resentment, not just of their new non-Arab subjects, uh, Persians, uh, for instance, but also of the tribal Bedouin Arabs who constituted most of the soldiery uh, of this expanding Islam. And this resentment, uh, the resentment of both groups, non-Arabs and the Bedouins, who were the, the cutting edge of the sword of Islam, uh, usually took religious form, uh, as most resentment and revolt did uh, in the pre-modern world. So in 750, in other words, after about a century, 750 of the Common Era, the Umayyads were in turn overthrown and replaced by another dynasty, uh, descended this time from Muhammad's cousin Abbas, and uh, called after them uh, the Abbasids. They were still Arab and still Qureshi, still from the clan of Quraysh, but they were more broadly based, and their main capital was at Baghdad in Iraq. And for the next two centuries, these Abbasid caliphs presided over the elaboration of a new civilization in which Hellenistic and Sasanian traditions were absorbed and were then Islamized, were then uh, put into an Islamic framework and subject to Islamic rules uh, and impulses. A great syncretic civilization uh, uh, that we remember uh, in terms of the Arabian Nights, but there was much, much more. This was the period that witnessed the fixing of the divine message that Muhammad had received from God in the Quran, uh, the compilation and authentication of the traditions, uh, the sayings of the prophet, which were being manufactured wholesale uh, for political and religious purposes, and which had to be uh, systematized, broken down, authenticated, by a highly elaborate science of authentication. These are the Hadith. And then drawing on the Quran and the Hadith, uh, the building uh, the, uh, of the divine law of the community, the Sharia, uh, with its various schools, its various recognized and unrecognized schools of jurisprudence. In other words, the construction of this tremendous legal, uh, legal religious structure uh, which continues uh, uh, to characterize Islam. These magnificent achievements uh, provided the soul and much of the structure for an empire that was glorious for its power, its culture, and its wealth. And we still associate it with the Arabian Nights, and justly so. Yet this was also, ladies and gentlemen, the civilization of a dominant but vulnerable minority. In other words, the Christians spent two or three centuries as an oppressed and persecuted minority, the, the Muslims uh, immediately expanded into domination, but they remained a minority as well over these three centuries of the classic period. Uh, Islam, the Islamic world, was ruled by these Arab Muslim dynasties, but most of the people in this Muslim empire uh, remained Christian or Jewish or Zoroastrian throughout this period. Uh, so the integration of Hellenistic and Persian and Arab traditions and their Islamization remain very much an elite phenomenon. 
And that in turn helps to explain the enormous stress, the fact that they were the religion of a minority, dominant but vulnerable as a minority. This helps explain the enormous stress in Islam on the unity of the community of Muslims, the Muslim Ummah. Uh, the high value which is attached to the unity of Muslims was in some ways as old as the Ummah itself because the group that gathered around Muhammad was also an embattled uh, minority. But now that it was a minority ruling a large empire, the unity of the Ummah took on a religious value, which was second only to the unity of God himself. One feature. Another, for the prophet and for his immediate successors, there was no distinction to be made between spiritual and secular authority. The prophet was not only the prophet, the bearer of God's revelation, he was also the governor uh, of, a, of a community which existed uh, in this world. And a distinction of sacred and profane made no sense. But now the course of events gave the indivisibility of religion and politics in Islam the riveting power of an ideal. It was a myth but it was believed precisely because it no longer uh, existed. The civil wars of that fourth decade actually separated the religious and political powers in practice. I mean, never again was political authority uncontested in Islam on religious grounds. But the horror that Muslims felt at disunity, at the disunity of the civil wars provoked that they provoked really soldered religion and politics uh, in the belief system. Uh, they soldered them together in Islamic belief and theory. Finally, tribal pastoralists were a problem from the beginning. Uh, Muhammad and the first caliphs uh, were city people. Uh, they were raised in cities and acted as if they were raised in cities. But their conquering armies, as I mentioned before, were drawn from the Bedouin. And the Bedouin, uh, their con the conversion of the Bedouin to Islam was fortified by the booty uh, that they were getting, but they were uh, unruly anyway, prone to discontent. Uh, and as, as I noticed, that discontent took a religious form. In other words, the option was not to return to paganism. The option that was chosen among discontented Bedouin soldiers in the Islamic community, especially in Iraq, was a radical return to the purity of the original Islamic message and the unity of the first community. Uh, and it was among these people that that kind of radicalism uh, resonated most strongly. Now, at the height of Islamic, of Abbasid power in the mid-19th century, uh, so in the mid-800s of the Common Era, the Caliph al-Mahmun uh, tried to arrogate to himself the authority to make religious decisions. And he did it on a couple of occasions, on a couple of issues. And the attempt of the, of the, the ruler to take on the authority, the Caesaro, what we would call Caesaropapist authority in, in Western tradition was rejected. Uh, it was beaten back uh, by the religious scholars and by the city crowds uh, which supported them. And basically it was never seriously repeated. So the religious and political authorities were shown in practice to be separate after all. But this also meant that the scholars henceforth defined the legitimacy of a ruler, the religious legitimacy of a ruler, only in terms of his personal virtue and his capacity to protect the ummah and make sure the laws were obeyed and not disobeyed. And there was no space in the belief system for institutions between the individual believer uh, and absolute political power. There was no legitimate cushion between the Muslim and the empire. You did not have those intermediary institutions forming. And so it's no wonder that this great civilization that was being uh, developed and formed uh, that Islamic discourse was sophisticated uh, and lively and nervous in these centuries. 
because people really did feel that they were dancing on the lip of volcanoes. Uh, but the integrated and comprehensive Islam uh, that this Islamic discourse fashioned in these years was a triumph of the human spirit and remains a triumph of the human spirit today. And it was just as well that they got it all together, if I may pass on to the next period, because meanwhile the empire was dissolving. Uh, beginning in the ninth century, about the time al-Mahmoun was making his uh, unsuccessful attempt to take religious authority to himself, and increasingly thereafter, the empire came under pressure from pastoralists, uh, uh, warriors from the desert, from within and without. Bedouins started to emerge once again out of the Arabian Peninsula, and Turks started coming in from Central Asia. And like the Romans uh, with the Germans, uh, seven or eight centuries earlier, the Abbasid caliphs tried to co-opt these warrior nomads, these warrior bands, uh, by hiring them as mercenaries and as palace guards. And then they found, as the Romans had, that, that the men were taking over. Once they were inside the citadel, uh, they took over the fort. In the mid-10th century, in other words, after two, two centuries of Abbasid rule, in 932 or 945, around then, the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad was reduced to a figurehead by the Turkic warrior dynasty of the Buyids. And even after that, the Turks kept coming and coming and coming. You were dealing with migration rather than just incursion. You would have thought that, that the destruction of Baghdad in 1258 by even fiercer nomads, the Mongols, would have been the culmination. But the truth is that the migrations kept up after that. And it was really not until Timur, Tamerlane, our Tamerlane, uh, with his great Central Asian empire and his mountains of skulls uh, around 1400 that they really came to an end. During this period of incursion and turbulence, the agriculture and the cities that depended on agriculture both deteriorated. And religious orthodoxy was threatened as well. The religious radicalism that came naturally to predatory nomadic warriors could be Shia, the radicalism of Shia, the minority, uh, hard to call it a sect, it's such a Western term, but the minority strand in Islam. And in the 10th and 11th centuries, most of the rulers in the old central Islamic zone were in fact Shia. Or it could be the newer mysticism of the Sufi. Uh, Sufism, uh, the search for personal union with God uh, that took the believer away from the pain and complexity uh, and the, the legality, the literalness uh, of the official religion uh, uh, now took fire and spread throughout the Islamic world. And Sufis now organized themselves in orders with distinct practices and, and distinct leadership lineages. These were also the centuries when the masses of people uh, across this central zone were converted to Islam for the first time. In other words, is, uh, the Muslims had been minority rulers before. Now the Islamic world became Muslim for the first time. And when Islam expanded to the ends of the known earth, to India first, from India to Southeast Asia uh, and the Indies, and on the other side to Africa. Much of this missionary work, this work of conversion, was done by Sufis, by holy men clearing land in the jungles and uh, gathering around them and converting the pagans and the animists uh, who lived there. Uh, in eastern India, East Bengal, what is now Bangladesh, the people converted were not converted from Hinduism, which had not yet penetrated the rainforests of eastern Bengal. They were converted from paganism and from animism. And in fact, there and in, in the African interior, Islam was in fact associated with the transition from hunting and gathering to settled agriculture in the first place. In other words, an earlier stage of uh, globalization. But the religious result 
was an extraordinary latitudinarianism. Again, to use a Western term, a, a, a tremendous basic, a huge laxity when it came to, uh, to beliefs, to actual beliefs. Because in order to expand, Islam had to take into itself and swallow pre-Islamic beliefs and practices in order to transform them. And like political disunity, uh, this laxity, this latitudinarianism and when it came to belief, threatened to dissolve Islam as an integrated religion faithful to the original message that God had conveyed through the prophet. And yet it survived. And there are two main reasons why. The first was an extraordinary Sunni revival uh, in the 10th and 11th centuries of the Common Era. In just a few generations, of splendid emotional and intellectual devotional effort. Uh, scholars and those around them built a superb new synthesis that included the Sharia, but it also included Sufism, that included the law, uh, but it also included mysticism. A, a new synthesis which permitted the ulama, uh, the religious scholars, to live and work together for the faith with the sheikhs and the peers and the holy men uh, of Sufism. Second, this new synthesis, this new religious synthesis, was then extended to the political sphere by the Turkic dynasty of the Seljuks. Some of you may have heard the name. It's a distinctive uh, uh, art. Uh, they have a distinctive art uh, uh, culture, too. Uh, the Seljuks, who dominated the central lands of Islam, Iraq and Iran, uh, in the century and a half around 1100, around the year 1100. And that synthesis, this new political synthesis, combined military dynasties, in other words, the dynasties descended from these uh, Turkish uh, warrior chiefs, mainly Turkish, military dynasties, Sunni ulama, the religious scholars, uh, and the Sufi orders. And a synthesis of these three elements basically uh, uh, lasted and remained characteristic of the Islamic world for the next four centuries, from about 1100 to about 1500. Now, to rise above the original tribal basis of these dynasties, in other words, there's a constant effort in Islam to rise above the family, the bloodline, the kinship group, uh, which is, well, in all great religions, but in Islam as well. And with these dynasties, which were defined, uh, after all, in terms of heredity, there, in order to get away from the tribal basis, there arose the practice of converting boys uh, from among non-Islamic peoples, uh, of, of, of recruiting boys from non-Islamic peoples, of converting them to Islam, of making them the ruler's personal slaves in law. Uh, and then staffing his military and administrative elites from them. Uh, that became very widespread and very enduring. And it was also in this period, as, a, as another vehicle for this synthesis, uh, that governments es established the practice of endowing and supporting religious colleges, religious teaching institutions, the madrasa that you hear about so much in Pakistan. They were also a fruit of this, this new synthesis. So an alliance of orthodoxy and of some political authority survived, survived all the buffeting uh, and all the latitude and laxity. But as in all human affairs, when you have achievements, they come at a price. There's a cost to them. And in fact, there were several costs in Islam. First, under this new synthesis, there was as little room for institutions other than the ruler, political institutions, uh, than as there had been under the old. Now, of course, groups existed. Groups existed with rules and structures. You had guilds. You had the Sufi orders. Uh, you had the schools of law. So there were groups uh, with, uh, with a personality out in Islamic society. But they lacked any legal personality. Uh, and most of them lacked uh, religious uh, justification and legitimation. Moreover, the religious legitimation, even for the ruler, 
continued to be as weak as it had been before. Early jurists in the great age of the Abbasids, early jurists, al-Mawardi, had expatiated on the Islamic virtues that a just ruler ought to have uh, without any contractual element, but at least uh, the, 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 the just Islamic ruler had certain virtues which were described. Now, scholars and jurists were dealing with these barely converted warrior chiefs uh, from these Turkish clans, and they begin uh, to preach the religious duty of obedience even to unjust rulers, even to unjust rulers, on the grounds that disorder was so dangerous to the ummah, to the Muslim community, and therefore to God's message in the world that any order was preferable to disorder. And as Al-Ghazali, who was the great jurist of the synthesis around 1100 put it, uh, necessity makes legal what would otherwise not be legal. And this doctrine of necessity is still invoked in Pakistan uh, by jurists regularly when the military takes over. So it's had a very long life. Uh, but you also have to say that as legitimation of political rule, it is, it is little and lame. Third, by the end of these hard centuries, these hard centuries of the migrations, of dissolution, of struggle to keep the religion alive and intact, the religious institution in Islam had become extraordinarily conservative. Extraordinarily conservative. Order was, in fact, continually threatened by religious radicalism and mysticism and the tribalist nomads to whom they most appealed. For religious scholars, the religious uh, uh, people, the ulama in their urban citadels, the temptation to hunker down on what had already been achieved was almost overwhelming, uh, and they succumbed to it. Once the great new Sunni synthesis that I talked about was in place, and once, and it has to be said that the majority of of people who had probably been Shia. I mean, you don't have statistics from this time, but most Muslims had probably been Shia. Now, uh, with the Sunni synthesis, they became Sunni again. Uh, for Sunnis, the door, the door of ijtihad, ijtihad, which is a concept of the righteous, of the rightful effort to apply law and doctrine to new situations. The door of ijtihad swung closed. Uh, ijma, the consensus of the doctors, of religious scholars, uh, became uh, the, the rule uh, in Islam, I mean the requirement uh, for truth. Everyone had to agree. Uh, innovation, bida, became sinful. Uh, and you got into a situation which was very widespread, not among the minorities, not among the Shia, because the Shia had to keep ijtihad the right to interpret as a minority, uh, as a persecuted minority. But for most Muslims, the law had been given forever, was there, it was clear, it was articulated, it was kept uh, by a vigorous ulama, and interpretation was permitted only within the narrowest possible uh, grounds for the day of judgment. Now, while this was going on, and in order to make it happen, the diversity, the doctrinal diversity that had already developed was accepted, was accepted. But that came at another price, because rather than orthodoxy, which is the great albatross uh, of, of, of Christian civilization, rather than orthodoxy, uniformity, conformity in doctrine, uh, mainstream Islam stressed orthopraxy, uh, took to stressing conformity in behavior, what, the way you dressed, the way you conducted yourself, family, and justified orthopraxy on, in religious terms. Sound pretty bleak? Well, then came two centuries in which Muslims proved once again that they could go beyond conservatism that they could rise above the conservative consensus in politics and religion. Because in the years around 1500, there, the Islamic world witnessed the rise 
of three great empires almost simultaneously, within years, within decades of each other. Uh, first, the Ottomans in Anatolia and southeastern Europe, in Egypt, Syria, and then after wars with the, with the Iranians in Iraq. The Safavids, Safavid dynasty in Persia, uh, and the Timurids, the dynasty which we call the Mughals, but which were uh, descended from a minor branch of the House of Timur in Central Asia, uh, ruling in North India and in Afghanistan. As usual in globalization, technological change had something to do with it. And in this case, it was the widespread use of gunpowder uh, in warfare, uh, which had uh, to do with the construction of these empires, just as it helped create the Portuguese and the Spanish empires uh, with which they competed and contested. And they're called gunpowder empires by some historians for that reason. All three of these dynasties, of these larger polities, uh, had been around for some time. Uh, the Ottomans had ruled the Balkans and most of Anatolia uh, since the 14th century. In other words, even before they took Constantinople in 1453. All these dynasties had Turkic origins and all ruled basically by right of conquest, however much or well they were legitimated uh, as by their performance as the keepers of God's law. Now, there were, of course, differences. Uh, the Ottomans and the Timurids were Sunni, and the Safavids were Shi, were Sh uh, and they made, it was they who made Iran into the Shia state and the Shia civilization, uh, which it has remained ever since. But all three of these gunpowder empires uh, developed legitimacies which took them beyond the military patronage states uh, that they and also took them beyond the simple legitimation from necessity. You know, if he's there, you have to obey him because disorder would be worse. Took them beyond that kind of basic uh, legitimation uh, of the previous era. They drew on three different traditions. The Timurids drew on the tradition of the Mongol, the universal Mongol Empire with an aspect of universalism. The Emperor Akbar, for instance, uh, experimented with a, a, a syncretic religion which would combine elements of all the others. Uh, the Safavids drew on the reforming zeal of Shiism, minority Shiism in the old Islamic heartland. The Ottomans drew on the holy warrior tradition, the sense of community mission, the Ghazi tradition on the borders of Islam and a Christendom which, for some mysterious reason, kept resisting uh, God's message. But as time went on, uh, each of these empires added an Islamic communalist caste, which was new. And each of them managed some kind of integration of the religious establishment uh, into the state power structure. Uh, it was different in each case, but uh, all of them achieved that. Now, return to the purity and unity of the original message. In other words, that radical revivalism that I talked about before as a, as a sort of the favorite uh, revivalism of the, Bedou, of the Bedouins and the uh, nomadic peoples. Uh, return to that kind of purity and unity uh, and to the unity of the original community always beckoned in Islam. It was always out there as an ideal. But these three empires, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Timurids, also based themselves on something broader, something that was more than just Islamic, but also Islamic. And in reality, I would argue, they discovered partial solutions to Islam's classic difficulty of finding religious legitimation for political power. These Islamic gunpowder empires, in other words, were something intermediate between the universal Muslim ummah of the Islamic ideal and the military patronage states that they had superseded. But like their equally absolutist European contemporaries, the Spain of the most Catholic kings, for instance, or the France of the most Christian uh, kings, 
or even even the England, even England, where uh, the monarch was becoming the head of the church, which the monarch has uh, remained to this day. Uh, these three empires demonstrated that you don't have to be a pure form to achieve extraordinary wealth and sophistication and power. When the Ottomans besieged Vienna in 1683, it was for the second time. They had been there in 1529 as well. When I was a student in Vienna in 1960, you could still go to a little square uh, and visit the spot where the Ottoman Grand Vizier, Kara Mustafa, had pitched his tent in 1683. And it was a stone's throw from the middle of town. And of course, they never took Vienna. But the point is that it wasn't the Habsburgs besieging Constantinople. It was the Ottomans in the heart of Europe. So during its first millennium, Islam was in the forefront of whatever globalization mankind could muster. And at the end of it, Islam was fully competitive by the globalization standards of the time. In other words, in globalization terms, all the differences and features that I've described to you and, and walked you through at some cost in complexity uh, and sophistication, uh, all these differences and features didn't make any difference. They didn't yet matter. And next time, on the 21st of February, if you can wait that long, we will turn to the next era uh, when these differences in features came to, came to matter a very great deal. And we will ask ourselves why. Thank you. generally by a combination of advantage uh, and conviction. Uh, in other words, these were uh, a certain element. Were, these were societies ruled by Muslims, and so it was advantageous. You could uh, get closer to or join the ruling class. There was also a tax advantage to becoming Muslim uh, because the states funded themselves from this jizya, the original states, which were taxes levied only on the non-Muslim populations, which of course was an incentive uh, to, uh, to become Muslim. Uh, and I think, I think in general, it is just advantageous uh, to be uh, of the same religion, especially in these pre-modern societies, uh, as those holding power. But it was also a, a real religion, well, another example, in coastal uh, areas of this middle period, uh, in Africa and in the Indies, um, um, Indonesia, what is now Indo Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, you had Islam brought by merchants, but which was then adopted uh, by the small kinglets uh, uh, on these coasts because it gave them an, an extra string in their bow of rule. In other words, uh, speaking for a universal religion uh, gave them uh, something above the, the mere tribal uh, or, and blood kin, uh, bloodline uh, appeal of Islam. Uh, in the interior, uh, as I, you know, I know India probably better than other areas, and I've mentioned East Bengal, uh, but also I think in the interior of Africa, uh, it, was, it was connected with these Sufi, uh, these Sufi saints, these uh, sheikhs and peers, uh, clearing land. I mean, it was like the Teutonic orders in Northern Europe. Uh, converting pagans, but without the violence, if I may say so, uh, that the Teutonic orders uh, applied to their missionary work. So I think it was a whole, uh, I think it was a whole variety of things. And finally, uh, I think it's probably true. It's, it takes a little psychologizing, uh, without enough evidence, that in this terrible, turbulent time, uh, there was just a great deal of comfort uh, uh, in religion in its Sufi form. I mean, this you know, effort to be with God uh, and organized in these orders, which gave comfort and support uh, in a, a form of social security, if you will, uh, at a time when the state could no longer provide uh, that kind of security. So I think it was a whole combination of things.
uh, I think it was marginal uh, to Islamic society. I think it, uh, you know, it sharpened polemics, I mean, which had always gone on. Uh, it came as a shock, uh, you know, to have Christian warriors established in what are, after all, Islamic holy places uh, as well. Uh, the Crusaders were savage, but, you know, I think their worst savagery may have been against uh, other Christians, the Byzantines. I mean, the take, taking of Constantinople in 1204 that uh, was a bloodbath that even the taking of Jerusalem uh, earlier couldn't match. But I think in terms of the, the major currents and the major components uh, of Islamic society, uh, I, uh, I think, uh, I don't think it changed anything uh, much and didn't, uh, certainly not decisively. But maybe I could ask a real expert to comment on that. Ahmed? Does that sound right? Okay. We have, uh, I'm abashed because there, there's some people in this room who really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think it depended on the time and the place. I mean, the original message of Muhammad uh, in the seventh century built very substantially and considered itself uh, to be a follow-on uh, to the great prophecies which had preceded, uh, including the, the, uh, the Jewish and the Christian prophecy. In other words, he described himself as the last uh, of these prophets, but whose value uh, and whose uh, uh, whose character as coming from God, uh, he fully recognized. So there was no, uh, there was some hostility because in the, the original struggles of the community uh, in Mecca and Medina, you had resistance from uh, Jewish clans. I mean, Jewish Arab clans, which then had to be negotiated and put down. So there was a, there was a controversy and a tension there. But in religious terms, it was a completion. Now, one of the problems, of course, always is that the Jews and the Christians who came under Muslim rule did not recognize uh, uh, Islam as the completion of their prophecy. Uh, well, it's a problem, you know? Uh, but, uh, you know, they sort of managed to live with it. So I think the degree of hostility and, and cooperation or cross-fertilization, cohabitation, uh, I think varied. Uh, very much with the time and the place. Uh, I think I think probably uh, it was minorities were more accepted, albeit as second-class uh, citizens uh, in law as well as in religion uh, in the Islamic world than they were in the Christian world. Yeah, I don't think he would, uh, that question would not have occurred to him and probably as badly posed for us. I mean, he felt that God was speaking through him and he didn't kind of ask, uh, uh, you know, why is it that I'm trying to improve on Judaism and Christianity? I mean, his major criticism and the criticism that uh, I think is kind of the nubbin of the Islamic criticism of Judaism and Christianity is that they, uh, uh, well, first, they don't accept the prophecy. That's the problem that we were talking about before. But uh, by not accepting the prophecy, they, they thereby uh, dilute the, mon the, mon the purity of the monotheistic message. In other words, the problem in Islam is, if I'm correct, somebody will correct me, uh, is shirk. Uh, which is uh, often translated as heresy, but it really is the association of other gods with the one true God. And hence the, the claim that uh, Jesus Christ is divine is just incomprehensible uh, to, to, to Muslims. It just doesn't uh, fit anything. Uh, and I think uh, they, they would also see a problem with the prophecy of the prophets. I mean, they're uh, in Judaism. So I think that that is the basic kind of uh, the, the danger and the, the weakness that, that Muslims see in Judaism uh, and Christianity is the, the danger of dilution uh, of the omnipotence and unity of the one true God. And that will get you into all sorts of trouble. But I think Muhammad, if you ask what, why Muhammad was doing it, 
uh, I don't think it had anything much to do with Jews and Christians. It was that God was telling, was delivering this message through him, and that was, it was a holy duty to pass it on and to, and to make it stick. We came up with the idea that the, uh, the characteristic Muslim posture during prayer uh, looks an awful lot like dovening. Uh, I mean, if you know Jewish practice, I mean, that, uh, that back and forth, uh, the first direction of prayer in Islam, which was only changed after some decades, was Jerusalem uh, uh, rather than Mecca. And that was uh, clearly drawn from from Jewish tradition. So uh, Muhammad uh, left a lot in the religion uh, from the, the predecessors uh, uh, in order to transform them, uh, as indeed happened over time. But it did take time. I think a large, settled, prosperous, urban civilization, which is what you got in the Islamic world, I mean, the inheritor of great empires and great traditions, functioning for two centuries is a much more propitious uh, uh, greenhouse and uh, a garden landscape uh, for, uh, you know, the growth of very high cultural achievement than the, the kind of uh, a poor, uh, kind of torn up, uh, uh, battered uh, peninsula of Europe, uh, which is where the Christians were at the time. Uh, then the Islamic world got a dose of what had happened to the Roman Empire uh, with uh, these migrations and this battering from, from nomads from Central Asia, which broke down these achievements and, and forced the conservative reaction, which I've described, which made it hard to keep innovating uh, as the centuries went by. Harder. I mean, the innovation continued. Uh, and I think that's sort of the basic reason. In other words, the, the, uh, that um, it's obviously too simple because you had different religious traditions and different specifics. But peace and prosperity and uh, over a, a broad stretch of humanity which already had uh, very rich and sophisticated traditions, is an adequate explanation, just as the destruction of the migration, the deterioration of agriculture, and of the role of cities uh, is, for me, an adequate explanation for uh, the increasing conservatism of the civilization. I think it depends on the period. I mean, it's as like the question over here of hostility between uh, between the great among the great religions uh, and how that played in Islam. I think it depended on uh, sort of the more specific circumstances at any given time. I mean, there's a permanent element uh, in Islam, uh, and it's of you know military conquest as a as a good thing. I mean, for spreading God's word. Uh, but it, it's not dominant. Uh, you know, the definition of jihad, uh, of a holy war or struggle, uh, for religion changes with time, it changes with the society, uh, it changes with need. And I would say that that's true of, of war in general uh, in Islam. Sometimes it looks great. I mean, I spoke about this, uh, the spe special Ottoman tradition, because the Ottomans really rose from warrior tribes who were uh, decade after decade and generation after generation fighting the Christians. Uh, and so they had a, a, a strong tradition of military, uh, a military component to their Islam. But uh, I think it depended on the time and place. I mean, you're, you're talking about 10 centuries. I mean, I've talked about 10 centuries. And we have five more to go. I mean, almost. <laughs> hmm. I think they're both absorbed and isolated. Uh, they're absorbed uh, to a certain extent. I mean, you know, the Shia uh, absorbed, uh, uh, I won't say faith in the Sharia, but uh, recognition of the Sharia, the Islamic law, uh, as important to the religion for Shia also. Uh, the Sunni, as I said, absorbed, uh, you know, mysticism as a legitimate part of the 
the Sufi mysticism is a legitimate part of the impulse. I think when you got really radicalism, r real radicals, I mean, uh, the kinds of radicals that you got in Christianity with the Anabaptists, I mean, some of these uh, radical Protestants during the Reformation, uh, you did as the, uh, as the Europeans did, uh, you either stamped them out uh, or you drove them up into the mountains uh, you know, where they have subsisted to this day uh, on the peaks of the Lebanon uh, or in Pakistan up in Gilgit and Hunza, uh, which has an Ismaili population. Ismaili, the Aga Khan, the fellow that raises the horses outside Paris, uh, uh, is also a, uh, a, has divine attributes uh, for his followers who, who still people uh, whole sections of the mountain areas of Pakistan. So I think it's that sort of combination of absorption, uh, extinction, uh, and uh, expulsion. I mean, forgive, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, was the way Milton uh, said it uh, when the Piedmontese drove the Protestants out. And Islam, I think you have the same range of, of responses. There were great seafarers and explorers. I just don't know who they are. Uh, but I could find them for you. No, no. I mean, no. Muslims were great sailors. Uh, they were great sailors and they were great explorers. I mean, it was the, it was the, it was seamen who took the religion uh, uh, to uh, the Indies. I mean, what are now uh, the Indies? Uh, and they were a great uh, military power. I mean, they and the Habsburgs fought each other to a standstill uh, over two centuries in the Mediterranean. And the Battle of Lepanto, uh, which uh, Westerners in, in 1576, I think, or nine, uh, which Westerners remember uh, as a great triumph of the Christian faith over the heathen uh, Turk, Don John of Austria and, and all of that, was actually one of the rare Christian victories uh, in, in, the, in the naval war uh, with the Ottomans, which then drew to a conclusion. But the Ottomans uh, held their own. They drove the Portuguese out of the Indian Ocean uh, until, uh, again, a struggle that lasted over many years in the early uh, 16th century until they themselves became uh, more preoccupied uh, with the Mediterranean. So I. Uh, you know, in terms of the t being up on technology, I think not just gunpowder, uh, but also seamanship. Of course, you know, the Mediterranean is shallow. And so uh, the wars there were not fought with these, so much with the sailing ships as with uh, coast-hugging galleys. And that was, that was sort of true on all sides. But I think in terms of the weapons of war, organization for war, uh, uh, they were pretty good. I mean, uh, and at sea as well as at land. I, I think what you get into is the, the sort of uh, socio-intellectual bases of innovation, uh, where it was okay up until the 17th century and then turned not okay. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an important element. Uh, it was, it tended to remain an overlay except in the lands of its origin. I mean, the Arabic lands. The, the Turks continued to speak Turkish. Uh, in India, uh, you continued to speak Sanskritic languages. I mean, you, had, you developed one, uh, an Islamized form of the Sanskritic language, which is Urdu, I mean, the national language of, of Pakistan today, uh, which very quickly, by the way, within the two or three or four decades, became a language of high poetry, I mean, an extraordinary. Uh, sort of achievement, uh, but as a court language. And then only then did it go out. So Arabic uh, was very important. Um, it did not overwhelm uh, languages, but it remained a kind of a uh, facies or, you know, a, a, a network of, uh, of connections uh, across the known world uh, that was Islamic at the time. Well, a lot, but of course that's true of all civilizations. Uh, just, I mean, the Greeks were conveying stuff uh, too. I mean, it wasn't all uh, original. Uh, more, you'd have to know more than I am to parse out what was original and what was not original. 
uh, I think that there were major Islamic contributions in the scientific realm, uh, although it is true, as Muslims like to point out, that they were, Muslims were the conveyors of Greek civilization to Latin Christendom, because it was through Arabic uh, that a lot of the heritage uh, of Greece uh, was passed on. Um, but I think there were original contributions, which I don't know enough to, uh, to sort of parse out for you. There were certainly original contributions in, in uh, architecture. I mean, Hagia Sophia uh, had an influence, but basic Muslim architecture is based uh, on the patterns of Arabia and Central Asia, and it is distinctive. I mean, the, uh, you know, the broad courtyard, uh, the, the wings and the dome uh, is based on things that are not uh, Byzantine or Hindu, although there are, there, are, there are wonderful connections. I mean, in Northwest India, Pakistan, where I'm from, uh, wonderful syntheses of, of Hindu and Muslim uh, motifs in the, uh, in the mosque architecture, the Hindu Shahi period, uh, for instance, of the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. And I think you get that all over the Muslim world. In poetry, uh, you have not just Arabic poetry, but you have an Islamic inspiration for successive waves of high Persian poetry, uh, which of course had uh, traditions of its own, uh, but it was much more than simply a, a, a conveyance, or uh, you know, it was a, it was a stimulus to uh, to massive new creativity into one of the world's great poetic traditions uh, in Persian, which is still the language of culture uh, in a lot of North India. Uh, and Pakistan, or was until not long ago. So I, once again, I think I think it varies, uh, but uh, was sort of splendid in in, in so many areas that uh, it. Uh, it uh, I'm uncomfortable with the charge uh, that it's uh, you know it's a bunch of unoriginal uh, lawyers and soldiers, uh, you know. Uh, passing on other people's cultural achievements. It just wasn't so. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.